everyone. I'm Artemis. And I'm Rajni. And we are STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm an internal medicine physician and the author of the middle grade novel, Midsummer's Mayhem, and the picture book, Seven Golden Rings. I'm an entomology technician and the author of Do Jellyfish Like Peanut Butter? Amazing Sea Creature Facts and The Grumpy Pirate. Hi everyone. Today at STEM Women in Kidlet, we're here talking with physician and New York Times bestselling author of the Karen Mala and the Kingdom Beyond series, Sayantani Dasgupta. Hi Sayantani. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi Sayantani. So excited to have you here with us today. So we would love to hear a little bit about your STEM background and how that led you into writing children's books. So first of all, Artemis and Rajani, I love the fact that you have this podcast um, because I feel like there really are a growing number of us with STEM backgrounds writing children's literature, which is kind of a fascinating phenomenon. Um, So yeah, my STEM background is that I'm a physician by training. I'm a pediatrician. And I already kind of made a shift from clinical medicine a number of years ago um, when I left clinical medicine, but stayed within, you know, a medicine adjacent um, field because what I ended up doing was I had been teaching narrative medicine and seeing patients. And then I just increased my teaching load. And uh, so then I was, you know, teaching narrative medicine, which in different parts of the country is called health humanities or medical humanities. Oh, interesting. Um, while I was trying to get my children's books published. So now I have a full-time academic career. I teach in the narrative medicine program at Columbia University. And I also teach in the Center for Race and Ethnicity Studies and in, in Complit. Um, and I do my children's literature. <laughs> so you're kind of a little bit all over the place or... You are very good at multitasking, obviously. (laughs) Well, you know, it's all about the stories, right? It's all about thinking about, um, right, whose voices are listened to and whose voices are marginalized. It's kind of all about stories and power, um, which to me is ultimately about health, right? Um, Having your story listened to, having your voice centered. That's an aspect of health, I think, both individually and socially. Sayantani, can you tell us a little bit about narrative medicine and what exactly that means? Because it's a pretty new field and I think it's really interesting. And I love, I love that it connects stories and medicine. You know, narrative medicine, when people hear the words, it automatically conjures, I think, this bridge between stories and science or stories and medicine. And it did that for me too. I heard the word narrative medicine at a time when I was leaving residency in pediatrics. I had already written a pretty terrible memoir. Nobody should write a memoir when they're in their early 20s. Um, But I had also already been (laughs) writing nonfiction, mostly essays and things. And I didn't know, like, I didn't know how to narrate what I was doing. I didn't know the word for it. I felt like it was two separate things. I was a writer and I was a doctor and I heard the word narrative medicine and without knowing anything about it, I was like, yeah, that's me, that's what I do. Um, And so this is actually kind of a funny story. People in medicine or science will appreciate this. I kind of turned down one job. I had been offered like a chief residency job. I turned it down 
And I went to a different institution because that was the institution where this thing that I didn't know what it was called narrative medicine existed. And I said, well, I'll take a different job at this place if I can go work in this thing. And I went and I knocked on my now colleague, Rita Sharon's door. And I was like, yes, I'd, I'd like to be involved. <laughs> it just happened that she had a grant coming up. I joined the grant. But, you know, the long and the short of it is that narrative medicine is the scholarly and clinical practice of honoring stories in the healthcare relationship. So we started really focused on clinical trainees. But since that time, um, for the past, gosh, now 10, 11 years, we have had a graduate program um, at Columbia where we train, yes, people going into healthcare or people already in healthcare, but also all sorts of other people, um, medical writers, journalists, people interested in supporting healthcare through the arts. So people who are interested in kind of art therapy or, or being kind of an artist in residence or a writer in residence in a medical setting. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, when I was training uh, for, I'm an internal medicine doctor. Um, we, you know, people would send us articles like, you know, doctors listen for approximately 1.5 seconds before they interrupt, right? And, um, and I get it. I mean, I understand why doctors are often put in that position because when you have 15 minutes to kind of go over something with someone, you have to kind of get the agenda done, right? But I have to tell you as a more experienced doctor over the years, one of the most valuable things you can do is to listen to people. Because honestly, nine times out of 10, when people come in upset or angry or sad or whatever, what they really want more than anything is to just um, have someone hear what they have to say. And if you can just give them the time to say what they need to say, and then maybe if you listen carefully, be able to say back to them what it is you think you heard, that is what they wanted. And, um, and it never takes, I mean, I've never had anybody talk to me for more than five minutes straight. And that's a long time for somebody to talk. So ultimately I feel as I've gotten more um, experienced, I just feel like it's gotten easier for me to flip that switch in my head and be like, get rid of your agenda and just listen, just listen to what this person has to say. And ultimately, even if I can't fix what's wrong with them or, you know, can't cure them of whatever it is that's ailing them, at least they've been heard. And, and listening itself is a part of the healing process, right? And that's what absolutely. a lot of people are really there for. No, <laughs> no I, I absolutely agree. And I think that um, that's very much the point is that listening isn't um, a skill that's somehow ephemeral or some people have it and some people don't and oh, well, if you don't, we would never say that about pharmacology or physiology. Like, oh, that doctor kind of knows her pharmacology or that one maybe knows their anatomy or that one's really gifted naturally, right? At physiology. We would never say that. No, we train you for it. You're in medical school or residency to get trained in these things. Similarly, how can we not train for active, empathetic, engaged, critical listening? And I think that's part of the premise of narrative medicine. Oh, that is so cool. I actually wish that like every, 
everybody got trained in this any you know like in all you know parts of medicine um because i because the world needs more listening and less rushing (laughs) and pushing of one's agenda (laughs) i just (laughs) i don't know if you know uche blackstock who's a physician who is also um, a medical educator and educates a lot about anti-racism and i don't remember the tweet exactly but it was something like you know we spend x number of years and x number of hours training um you know physicians to be in pharmacology and physiology but we don't train them systematically in anti-racism and that's the thing that's going to impact people's lives so much. So I think it's a similar, it's a similar notion that there are things that impact health and wellness of individuals and communities that we're not training for. So that's, you know, my day job as it were. <laughs> it so sounds cool. really fun. It is. It's terrific. And um, I love teaching uh, even though the switch to zoom teaching has been, you know, a thing. Um, but despite that, but despite that, you know, um, I think having students um, like having perhaps young people in your own life uh, keeps you honest. So it keeps me honest. And mm-hmm. although I write for like eight to 12 year olds and my students are 19 to 25 year olds, let's say, it's not that different. Don't tell them that. It's not that different. It's, <laughs> like, it's like this level of, um, vigor, but also like critical optimism, like the ability to like see what's just and unjust. And I really, um, I really value those interactions. And I feel like, again, despite the fact that I write for a slightly younger age, my students without even knowing it are a big part of my writing career. Like they keep me fresh and young besides the fact that they show up to my book launches and they buy my book for the cousins. I mean, they're oh, that's awesome. incredibly adorable and, you know, supportive and lovely. I know it's, it's amazing. Right. And like the, when I, we have medical students that come through our office and they have so much energy and so much time. Like, so I, you know, we always ask our patients whether they're willing to see a student person, you know, saying I will always come in and, you know, kind of talk about everything with them, but my student can spend like an hour with someone. And it's amazing. And my patients feel so well taken care of. They're like, oh yeah, they went over everything. They're super thorough. I'm like, yes, that's good. So everyone is happy and um, it's just wonderful. And they have such energy and they really have such optimism. Like that is the thing. When, when the world beats you down, then you hang out with young people who are excited about something and you're like, that's it, that's it, that's it. I feel the optimism again. That's exactly it. And I don't you feel like writing for young people is like that too. It's like an exercise in optimism and radical imagination. Like we're, you know, the world is going to have to be a better place and we have to work for it because our young readers need it and demand it and will help (laughs) us, you know, get there. Um, So yeah, I, I definitely feel that sense of optimism, particularly in times like this, where it's hard, it's hard to keep a hold of your sense of optimism, but I think young readers and students, right, keep you there. Absolutely. So, so tell us about your inspiration for Kieran Mulla and so the, whole, the whole series. The whole series. So um, yeah. as I said before, I had always written, um, you know, even throughout my training, throughout, um, you know, all of my STEM kind of education, but I hadn't really written fiction. And I didn't start writing children's fiction until my own kids were becoming kind of 
middle grade readers. And, and in particular, my son, who's now 18, this was probably 10, 11 years ago. He was seven, eight, nine. He was becoming a huge fantasy reader. But, and again, this is, you know, a number of years ago, he was reading Harry Potter, Arthur's Fowl, Percy Jackson, what have you, all these characters he loved, none of whom looked like him. And I myself am a daughter of Indian immigrants. And when I was growing up in this country in the 70s and 80s, I never saw in a movie or on TV, I never read in a book any Buddy who looked like me. Like there just weren't protagonists who looked like me out there. And at some level that, and I was a big reader. I was a big, you know, I always have loved stories, but at some level that kind of gave me the subconscious message. Well, maybe kids like me, we can't be the heroes of stories. Like maybe I'm not worthy of being central in you know a fantasy or or being heroic in any way and although mm -hmm. i got over that feeling i deeply remember it right it was a painful internalized like you know cannonball i carried around in me for a long time and when i saw my own children having a similar experience i was so devastated because i thought not having been in children's literature mm -hmm. i thought well, things are so much better. There's so many more diverse characters than when I was young. And that's true. While that's true, mm -hmm. um, it just so happened for my son that he was a fantasy reader. If there wasn't a flying broom or a witch or a warlock or like a spell, he wasn't having it. <laughs> um, and in his particular genre, you know, of choice at the time, there really weren't a lot of choices. There really was not a lot of diverse representation. And so I started writing the Kieran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond series mm -hmm. for my kids at the bedside. And what I did was I reached back to the Bengali folktales that my own grandmother had told me on trips to India. And I would take these long summer trips to India. And, you know, after having been deprived of characters who looked like me in the States, suddenly she was telling me stories of brown princes and princesses on flying horses, like, fighting evil and saving the day. And I love these stories. And so I started to draw from those stories, but modernize them, but play with them, you know, play with them kind of fast and loose. And um, I gave myself permission to do so because of course these are folk tales. Um, and so by their nature, they're oral stories. And mm -hmm. so I remember my grandmother even like playing around with them. Like if one cousin was being bad, let's say a cousin had been caught lying or something. Suddenly that night, you know, under the mosquito net, the story we were told, the like the story got changed a little bit. And the moral of the story became like, <laughs> don't lie or else the snake will come get you or whatever it is. Um, so I realized I'm like, you know what? Oral stories adapt and like, it's okay. Um, and so I took a character from a Bengali folktale, Kiran Mala, who had older brothers. Um, and in the original story, the older brothers like go off and have adventures and they kind of put her down. They're like, you're the girl, you're the youngest, you don't get to come. Um, and of course, when they get in a heap of trouble, she has to go save them. So I had always loved this kind of underestimated character, mm -hmm. but I took her, I made her an only child. I'm an only child. I put her in New Jersey. 
I had gone to high school in New Jersey. <laughs> I gave her my daughter's favorite combat boots, you know. Um, <laughs> and I started writing these stories bedside, not knowing one darn thing about publishing. Nothing. Um, and so by the time I had enough of the story written to realize, oh, maybe I could actually publish this thing. That was a whole new chapter of learning and growth. And I often tell people, I'm like, you think medical school was hard? Like publishing is really hard. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. I tell my friends, I have never been this rejected in my entire life. Like ever. Like I'm just, you know, and you know, we've like gone to college, we've gone to medical school, we had to go to residency, all these things. And it's like, yeah. I got more no's in publishing than I did in my entire career of trying to get into college, medical school, and residency. Just lots and lots of rejection. You know, hey, but I grew a thicker skin, that's for sure. Uh, and Sayatani, I think you and I grew up not far from each other. You were in Ohio, is that right? Yeah. Where did yeah, you grow up? In Louisville, Kentucky. I yeah. to, wait, you grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, yeah. where our Asian is? Oh, oh, yeah. Don't, don't even. Yes, it's too much of a coincidence. I'm telling you, it's insane. <laughs> yes, I grew up there in the 70s and the 80s when there were, you know, some Indian people, but not that many Indian people. And like we had a really close knit community. And I grew up reading all kinds of books about people who didn't look like me, which was fine because I love them all. And then I would go to India in the summer and I would read those Amar Chitrakathas. I would read those books about people who weren't me either because they were Indian Indian and I wasn't Indian Indian. It was an interesting, but I, all those stories that I read had an influence on me too. And so it's cool. It is so cool. And you know what, for what it's worth, for people who think that like Indian is like a term that encompasses all kinds of I've never heard the folk tales that you refer to. Oh no, of course not. It's like a really cool thing for me. It's like something, it's like a totally new discovery for me. And yeah, exactly. Why would I have, right? <laughs> well, the thing is the, the folk tales that my grandmother told me are told in Bengali and Bengal is both a region of India. And, you know, we used to be one big region, but you know, it's also includes the country of Bangladesh. But these aren't, these are regional folktales. These aren't folktales that are common to other parts of South Asia at all. And so what I found exciting about writing them or writing stories based on them was being able to celebrate stories that are shared by people now of multiple countries, India and Bangladesh and the diaspora, of course, multiple religions, right? Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, like anyone who speaks Bengali knows these stories. Um, and so that became really kind of exciting for me um, to say, hey, you know, we have great, you know, heterogeneity in this region and to be able to celebrate that. And it was a struggle. Um, you know, in my stories, I don't italicize the Bengali words. But I also, the way I, and obviously Bengali is written in a different script. So I'm, you know, writing in Romanized script in English script. Mm -hmm. um, but to make the choice to translate the sounds from the Bengali as opposed to from Hindi, how you would say the same word in Hindi, yes. was a big choice for me. Like in Bengali, you might say shadi, and in Hindi you would say 
sari. So do I write S-H-A-R-I or do I write S-A-R-I, right? It's oh, these, and I had to make these constant choices. Um, but it was, I mean, it was a good problem to have because it was about celebrating both South Asia as a general region, but also the incredible heterogeneity and specificity, right, of the region. Did you grow up with both those languages at your house at all? I grew up speaking Bengali and English, mm-hmm. but not, I mean, Hindi is, a, it's, you know, it's similar enough to Bengali that I can understand it, but it has gender. Bengali doesn't have gender. Um, so I can't really speak Hindi. I mean, I speak terrible made up Hindi. Like I just say Bengali words with like a Hindi accent. So it's like, I'm trying to come up with a good equivalency. It's like if you speak Spanish and you go to Italy and you just kind of you know, like imaginarily italicize, like Italianize your Spanish words. It's like that. It's like similar enough that you can get away with it, but it's not the same language. And I know no Hindi. Like I can't, I mean, I, I know zero. So like when we went, we go to India and my cousin's um, would watch Hindi movies, I would have one of them translate for me. I mean, and for the most part, the acting, like you could tell based on the acting what was going on, but if there was some intricate plot point, they would explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And nowadays on Netflix, you can just turn on the subtitles so it doesn't even matter. Yes, I know freedom. <laughs> You're listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, hosted by Artemis Rarig and Rajni Laraka. We're here today with Kidlit author Sayantani Dasgupta, who has both an MD and an MPH from Johns Hopkins University and who currently works in narrative medicine. So your book has other languages in it. Does it have any secret science in it? It has tons of science in it, in fact. Um, So this is my um, kind of not so secret revelation, which is that although I'm a doctor and my training is all in you know, medicine and that sort of science, medical science, I am a secret wannabe physicist. Like I always regretted not taking more physics um, in college. And part of it is a romanticized notion of astrophysics. Like part of it is just me having read all the Madeleine Langle books way too often as a young person. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And wanting to write about space and black holes. And so part of it is like kind of a poetic fascination mm-hmm. with the multiverse and space and black holes and that sort of thing. And part of it is a real, like I read every lay article I can get my hands on about, oh, this new black hole is discovered or, oh, this new, you know, whatever was discovered. Um, and I love the metaphor. I love the idea of string theory for my books. And the reason is as follows. Um, I think that immigrants are like space travelers. We are like multiverse hoppers because string theory is this idea that there are multiple planes of universes lined up next to each other like strings on a guitar. And they each don't know about each other, but they're each existing like very, very close to one another. And I thought, well, what a perfect kind of encapsulation of what it's like to be an immigrant child. You have one foot in one world, one foot in another. Neither of your worlds really know about each other, but you get to be the one who galaxy hops. And so there's a lot of um, kind of somewhat made up astrophysics, but inspired by actual astrophysics. Um, There's string theory, there's black hole theory. Um, So there's a lot of kind of space science in the books, but I encourage any young person listening to this podcast 
please like be inspired by the books and then go do your own research. Like please don't take <laughs> anything in the books as a hundred percent physics or astrophysics. Please. It, it is fiction. It is fiction and it's wonderful. And it, it, um, it makes you feel like you're reading. So, so there's something about the Karen Mala series that makes you feel like you're reading stories that like a story that you, you heard, but like there's something familiar about it, right? There's something familiar about the kind of the ways that the, the stories unfold, but it feels totally fresh and new because of her, her voice, which is so like classic American teenager. It's just wonderful. She's, um, she's a little bit New Jersey. Don't mess with her. That's all exactly. I have. <laughs> but the other thing is that all this kind of like astrophysics string theory stuff makes it feel like you've like tapped into some sort of like some real magic. It is, it is so wonderfully written, so entertaining. I totally get why, you know, um, middle grade readers are obsessed with it. Um, Cause it's tons of fun, but then you also get these flashes of like, oh, you're connecting to something bigger here. And it's so, so cool. Oh, thank Bravo. you so much. I mean, that was, that was the goal. I mean, there were multiple goals. One was to kind of have fun with these big ideas. Like I think science and story to get back to your podcast, they're similar because they ask big questions, right? Why are we here? What's our role in the universe? What makes something go wrong in our bodies? What makes us heal, right? These are big, big questions, right? You know, what determines the beginning of life and what determines the end? Um, why does the sun rise and set? Why does the moon change shape, right? All these things. Um, and I think that folk tales you know, had as a type of story, had a similar bent. Like I think folk tales emerged because ancient peoples were asking these questions throughout the ages. And maybe they came up with slightly different answers based on what was available to them, but yeah. they're not that different from scientists, right? They're asking the big questions. And so I wanted to ask the big questions. I wanted to like take away this idea that immigrants were somehow not at the forefront of science or exciting things that were happening. In fact, mm -hmm. really think about immigrant communities. We're the ones who are using Skype and like wire transfer <laughs> and WhatsApp. And we're at the forefront right. of all these emerging technologies only because we're connecting with loved ones across the globe. So I wanted to debunk that. Um, but I also um, really wanted to write just a cracking good story that you could read at that level, right? Just fun, fast, silly, lots of egg jokes, right? That the bird tells, whatever. Um, <laughs> demon snot and chase scenes and maybe a little bit of crushing, you know. But you can also, like, there's also big questions about, you know, family and identity and what does it mean to find your superpower in your cultural identity? And, or even, you know, how do we use the absurd to critique colonialism or bureaucracy or mm. right, racism? Like big, big questions. You can mm. come for the demons not and you can stay for the big questions, <laughs> um, right? And, and it'll get you at whatever level you're at. And that was the goal. I hope I accomplished it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in these books too, which I think is just fantastic. Um, and it's 
And it's, well, and it's the best kind of philosophy, which is like, you read it and you're like, oh, it's making me think about this. And that's, that it's not telling me what to believe. It's just making me think about things. And I think that's really, really cool. And something that kids really connect to also. Yeah, well, in science, we do it, right? We ask questions, like that's what we do. So why did you actually go into STEM field to begin with? So I um, liked science. I mean, I was good at it. I liked it. Um, And I really, I don't have physicians in my family. Um, And I I have activists in my family and academics. Um, But I saw medicine as a way, as a concrete tool to help people. Like I really saw it as a skill set to alleviate suffering, to try to contribute a little bit to the world. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, um, you know, I still see what I, I see what I do as always striving for that goal. Um, You know, okay, right now I'm not seeing patients right now I'm teaching in Mm -hmm. classrooms, but you know what teaching in classrooms is about putting young people out there in the world who are like excited to change it and make it better. Mm -hmm. Putting out stories for, you know, young readers to read is about, inspiring young folks to see themselves as heroes, to know that they can change the world, to feel empowered, right? To think about big questions like justice and fairness and equity, Um, Mm -hmm. to think about, right? um, How do we struggle to make things better, not just for ourselves, but for everyone? So, I mean, I hope that all of these careers that I've had or, you know, continue to have in my life are all kind of pointing towards the same goals. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes I, a lot of absolutely. sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that medicine and writing are all about connection, about connections between human beings. I and agree. so, and so, I mean, and you're, you, you're taking a slightly different, um, you know, approach in terms of medicine, but it's the same thing. It's connecting to people and connecting to young people and students and, um, and it's framed around health. And then your, your stories uh, do the same thing. Uh, I, yeah, it's, it's so cool. Oh, thank you. I mean, (laughs) I often like to say it's like a, you know, it's me being cutesy, but I also mean it, you know, stories are good medicine. And I do think that, right, there's this overlap between particularly because all of my work in narrative medicine is around justice and voice and who gets to speak and, you know, how do we think about justice in terms of population health? So that, so, you know, it Mm -hmm. very much overlaps all of my interests. So what was your favorite STEM related class that you've ever taken? It could be in elementary school, high school, or medical school? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I AP bio, and I'm saying that only because I right now have a junior <laughs> daughter. Um, I have a first year college son, but I have a junior daughter who is remote. And so I'm like hearing her AP bio classes sometimes like floating <laughs> around the house. And I'm like, gosh, I really loved that class. And I really loved Mrs. Odo from Montville Township High School, who I don't know if anyone out there um, is related to or took classes from, but man, she made it so exciting and she made um, it such an adventure. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but do you remember those um, magic school bus books, the ones where you actually went into the body, like on the bus? Like you, yes, like, I, I have kids. Right? I see them all the time. Totally. So I'm a scholastic <laughs> author, so I'm reminded of how wonderful magic school bus was. But I remember sitting in AP bio in high school 
Um, and feeling like she, I mean, she made it so alive. It felt like you were like on the magic school bus driving into the esophagus or whatever. <laughs> um, and that's really, that's probably when I was like, oh, I want to do this. I'm going to go into medicine. <laughs> Not knowing anything about medicine at that point. But there you go. <laughs> that's perfect. What is your um, favorite STEM book that ha- that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, um, well, I certainly think... Madeline Langle's books, which are children's books, but which bridge, um, again, science and story, big questions of philosophy with cracking good family tales, right? Um, were my first, that, that was my first entry point to kind of falling in love with science in story. Um, so go read anything by Madeline Langle, certainly the Wrinkle in Time series, um, which deeply influenced me. But I'll tell you the truth. My actual favorite series of hers is the Austin Family series. Mm-hmm. Right? A Ring of Endless Light is the best, oh, the best yes. book ever. Um, it's about this young girl who, you know, is going through some family stuff, but also figures out she can communicate with dolphins. I mean, who doesn't want to communicate with dolphins? Um, so certainly anything by Madeline Langle. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't know outside of the health humanities, I mean, I obviously do a lot of reading in narrative medicine and the health humanities. Um, Outside of the health humanities, I don't do a lot of like popular science reading, but um, certainly if folks are interested at the intersection of of reading stuff at the intersection of race, health, medicine, I would say, go read Dorothy Roberts, go read Harriet Washington, um, Medical Apartheid. Go read Ruha Benjamin, who writes about, who writes at, teaches at Princeton and writes about kind of science and technology studies, the intersection of um, science, race, and health. Um, go read Walida Imarisha, who is not so much a science writer, but she co-edited a, co- a collection called Octavia's Brood. And they were, um, I think the rest of the title is Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. Um, so go, you know, read Walida Imarisha and Adrian Marie Brown's co-edited book, um, because a lot of, you know, my teaching nowadays is actually at the interstices of kind of race, health, and speculative fiction. I'm really interested in mm-hmm. how we can use stories to speculate forward more just worlds. And so I, you know, those are a lot of the folks that I end up teaching and reading. So Dorothy Roberts, Ruha Benjamin. Walida Marisha and Adrienne Marie Brown, um, Moya Bailey, who's also a fantastic scholar. Those would be some favorites. That's awesome. My, my, um, my favorite uh, Madeline Lingle book outside of um, the Wrinkle in Time series was um, The Arm of the Starfish. Right? Oh, I read that one too, yeah. But that's in the Austin Family series. That's like number three or four, right? Yes, yes. I was like, okay, yeah. I know it was about, you know, like it was the science fiction part of it was the um, scientists studying um, starfish arm regeneration and seeing if they could apply it to humans to help people regenerate limbs. And I couldn't tell when I read it where the science left off and the science fiction began. It was immersive and amazing. I just, I loved it. Absolutely. Or the the fact that we all learned about mitochondria way before we ended up in (laughs) biology classes because of Mamba Langle. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And (laughs) apparently there are like creatures in your mitochondria too. Like, okay, yes, let's, let's do it. Let's let's bring it on. 
no, it's amazing. It's amazing. And oh, okay, I'll just this is like so medical nerd, but like I will tell you that the bad guy in the arm of the starfish has Cushing syndrome. And oh, I forgot that happened. He read describes it in a while. him. The, the main character describes him as a spider. He's got this big body and these skinny limbs. And she was just like, and I think it's mentioned somewhere in the book, like the diagnosis, because I don't know otherwise why I would know it. But I was like, oh, and like when I learned about that in medical school, I was like, oh, I know this <laughs> because of that book. <laughs> You're suddenly diagnosing everybody in every book you've ever read. Right. I was like, oh, what is this? I know. It's so, it's so much fun. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Um, it's really fun learning about an entire field of medicine that I didn't really know about before well, and thank you so much hearing about your me. wonderful books. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. Um, the next, the Kieran Mala series has a freestanding like prequel um, uh, called Force of Fire coming out in May of 2021. So just keep an eye out for that. Um, and then I have a, speaking of science and story, I have a biography of Virginia Apgar coming out in April as part of Chelsea Clinton's She Persisted series. So that will oh, be great. Yeah, That's okay. fantastic. So much fun. And so much fun. Um, Force of Fire is about the, the bad guy, right? Force of Fire oh, the is the origin woman. story for my... <laughs> for my demon queen so indeed and and the tagline is sometimes it's good to be bad so, <laughs> but you have to say it in that voice yes <laughs> in true demon queen voice yes <laughs> fantastic exactly. thank you so much for coming science honey thank we had so such much. a great time this was so much fun you can find out more about Sayantani and her books and her work as a physician scholar at scientinydescoupta.com. For a link to that, look in the episode notes or on our Facebook page, STEM Women in Kidlet. And now it's time for STEM book recommendations. My book recommendation is Honeybee. The Busy Life of Apis Mellifera by Candace Fleming with illustrations by Eric Roman. This book is beautifully written and as an entomologist, I'm super excited about how scientifically accurate all of the honeybee illustrations are. My STEM book recommendation is 100 Bugs, a counting book, written by Kate Narita, illustrated by Suzanne Kaufman. This really fun book not only uh, examines the different ways to add numbers to get to 10, so 1 plus 9 and 2 plus 8 and so on and so forth. It also teaches kids about different insects and um, uh, plants uh, that grow in certain environments, and it's all written in this lyrical verse. Really, really beautiful. Thank you for listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, the podcast about women with degrees or jobs in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, who also happen to write children's books. Happy reading!